Greetings, troubled listeners. Welcome back to the Troubled Men Podcast. I am Renee Coleman, sitting in the safe house, on the line with my co-host, the original troubled man for troubled times, and future mayor of New Orleans, Mr. Manny Chevrolet. Welcome, Manny. Hey, man, what's going on with you? Oh, uh, you know, just plugging along, Manny, just plugging along. I uh, got hot water back in my uh, my tenant's house, the, the, the one that was destroyed by the tree, so can check that off the list. All we need now is electricity, and uh, the guy can go live there again. Wow, he's a patient tenant, isn't he? He is. Well, he likes the place, you know. He's kind of he's a younger guy. He's uh, didn't didn't have a, a super rigid schedule, so he's able to kind of go back up to uh, Tennessee, wherever he's from, hang around there, visit with some family and stuff. And he's he's uh, I don't know exactly where he is, but uh, but yeah, he liked the place. I told him, you know, I was working on it. He said, "Well, I'll, I'll wait," you know. So and it's it's you know, it'd be really cool. Hmm. Is when you when he does come back when you say it's everything's ready you raise his rent by three hundred dollars <laughs> yeah there you go there you go man say listen I did all this new work for you man I've got to pay for it rent's going up right right well the he's actually still under his lease although we we were going to cancel the lease but uh, we never wound up doing that um, I had never even returned his deposit so it's just kind of a a suspension of his uh, tenantship. And uh, so we're going to resume his tenantship uh, shortly here. So what's been going on with you? We had the big, uh, the big Manny for Mayor fundraiser at Carrollton Station. That was kicks. That was a lot of fun, yes. And I did notice at the end of the night that you didn't give any money towards the fundraiser. So well, Manny, I give I give so much, man. It's uh, you know, it's uh, hours upon hours of uh, you know, we're, uh, working at the slaving away here for the Manny Chevrolet cause. You know, I didn't think you needed. Uh, I, I figured I'm giving it in kind services, as they call them. Oh, uh, all right, sure. Whatever you <laughs> say, you know, you give a few bucks at least. You know, help. Well, maybe it's maybe, maybe yeah. I'm maybe I'm hanging yeah. on to it for, for a, a future fundraiser. You said you're going to have a few more of these, right? We might. I don't know. It depends. I, I haven't heard from uh, my number two, and since the fundraiser, so I don't know if he took off with the money or not. So did you guys, uh, did somebody get the money? I know last time you were saying the last last go around four years ago, uh, it was a successful night, but then uh, nobody wound up holding the bag or some, right, someone, yeah, someone well, that you didn't know was holding Someone the bag. has the money. Right. It's all good, as they say. Somebody, we made some money and we're going to hopefully spend that money on, okay. the, on the right things, you know. Okay. I, I was hoping uh, uh, for more money, but we didn't get as much as we were anticipating. But we'll see what we can do with the money that we did raise. But it was a fun time. Uh, you know, uh, it was fun. And, and I realized um, there's so many old, old, old musicians in this town. I mean, these, some of these guys we got were old. But they well, played pretty well, you know. I yeah, guess. yeah, yeah. They've been playing good their, their whole lives. A lot, of, a lot of practice. You know, but uh, I'm hoping, you know, maybe next time to reach a younger crowd, get some other younger acts because, you mm. know. Uh, Do you ever, know any younger people, Manny? Uh, yeah, I know. So I work on a, on a college university. I know tons of young people. Yeah, but you don't, you're not friends with those people. You, you despise them, right? I, well, I'm, I'm friendly with some of them. Oh, okay. I despise most of them. Right. But, I guess that's uh, that's most people everywhere for, for me too, really, you know. It's, yeah. So so wait, was this like a room capacity thing? You're saying that there was too many old people and that young people couldn't get in? 
You, you think there, there's... there's... <laughs> no. Uh, no, there, there was just, room. There was, they just there weren't was, there. <laughs> there was room. They weren't there, the young kids, because I guess, you know, we have these old timers, you know, trying to raise money. So you think, was, you, you think the kids aren't paying attention because the old people are hogging all the... The, the glory or something? Is that, they're like, no, oh, I, I would I would come to this thing, but I know old people are giving money, so I'll go like. Well, the kids don't have money. I mean, they're you know they're on fixed. Well, income, then you don't but... need them. That's fine. You, you just hang out with old people. There you go. All right. I mean, if you're doing a fundraiser, why 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 do you? I mean, why do you want the kids to come if they don't have money? It's a fundraiser. Don't, don't okay. worry about the kids. They love, okay. Let them All do right. their Good. thing. Go, I'm go just saying. Let's give him some pushback saying. right off All the right. bat here. Okay. Now, you didn't give any money, and how old are you? I, I'm, you know, old enough to not be a kid at this point for sure. So, well, maybe you can give some money then. That just because I'm old doesn't mean I have money. I'm just saying. All but right. yeah, all right. All right. So, uh, so yeah, we had the the fundraiser. That was cool. So, so uh, you know, we, we've had some other political news uh, that's that's come up in the last since the last podcast manny um, what's that well the first thing was did you see uh, uh how edwin edwards widow uh she was uh, on the front page uh she says uh, the headline is i wanted to bring him home and and the story <laughs> is about it says uh, about 10 weeks after former governor edwards died his widow uh had him dug up from his Baton Rouge cemetery, uh, so she could have him cremated. So he has and, his own cemetery. Well, well, the the one that he was in. I don't know. Whoa, it's, wait, his. Like it's it's change change of plans. Well, well, so he had a whole funeral. You know, the the all the family was there, and then she kind of surreptitiously, uh, ten weeks later, had him dug up and and cremated, and she's keeping his remains on her nightstand. So she, and, uh, well, thought, it's good for her. Why not? I, you know, I think cemeteries are the biggest waste of uh, real estate. So why, you know, taking up fucking space? Well, he already bought the cemetery plot. He, he well, already paid he, for the plot. You know, well, I don't know that they're going to resell it. Is, is, is it possible that 10 weeks of like sort of curing underground will help with the cremation? Well, you know, there, there is, uh, when, when, when they use those kind of above ground, um, you know, tombs that we use in new Orleans, there is a kind of natural, uh, cremation process that happens over, over years. And in a sense, you know, it, it turns to dust. Ultimately. So what was her reason? What did she say? She just wanted to be closer to him. Well, that's what she's saying. And, and that, well, uh, you she know, wants she... to be closer to him. She should slit her wrist. Ouch. Well, uh, okay. All right. <laughs> Annie, well, maybe we can, uh, we can, we can, uh, suggest you know. that to her. How close can you be to the ashes? Damn. You know, is she going to be like Keith Richards and snort the ashes? Okay, well, those are all possibilities. Again, it doesn't go into that in the article. It, it does say that his his older children, who are quite a bit older than the than the the third wife, uh, were horrified and said that that uh, you know of all the conversations they'd had with their dad, he was totally against cremation and wanted to be buried and. Uh, and you know this whole thing has exposed a rift between uh, the the children and and uh, the 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 new wife. And it said it mentioned in the article. I forgot about this that the child was this old. They have an an eight year old son from from Governor Edwards. So uh, man, you know I was thinking uh, Edwin. He's such a character. He's such a you know larger than life character. 
uh, you know, he, he, he couldn't quit. Death couldn't hold him back. You know, he's still making the newspaper, uh, you know, uh, all this time after his, after his demise, you know, as one of those, those guys like, uh, like Graham Parsons, you know, where they're moving the body around, you know, it kind of adds to the legend. <laughs> so wait a minute, you're saying he's got an eight year old kid. Yes, Edwin has an eight-year-old child with this with this woman who uh, had him so, cremated. He was he banged this chick eight years ago when he was like eighty-four or something like that. <laughs> yeah, no, I think he might have had uh, his his uh, his sperm stored. Perhaps I'm, it's, I seem to recall something like that. But uh, you know, before he went into prison, but she met him in prison. Uh, the article reminds us of that that uh, they met while he was serving a prison sentence for corruption. Now, what married- was she doing there? Well, I guess she might be one of those chicks that likes uh, prisoners, you know, kind of a prisoner groupie, you know, because when they got married, he was 83 and she was 32. (laughs) And uh, when did he die? How old was he when he died? Uh, Let's see. That was 2011. So, Jesus, uh, was he 93? Is that possible? (laughs) Or 92? Yeah, he was definitely up there. Okay. Uh, well, you know, what? Are, you know, who, who cares? I don't really yeah, care yeah. about that. Yeah. No, you know, I thought like, it was interesting. You know, it's a, we're talking about politics. You know, your 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 uh, your run. I mean, well, good for Eddie. I mean, you know, good for and good for the woman. She, you know, she saw something. She saw dollar signs, and she went for it. Well, she's keeping know? the brand out there. Yeah, she's keeping the brand. Good for her. I, you know, whatever. It's like you know, as long as they don't find uh, cash in the freezer, you know, that's the thing she's got to worry about. And I'm sure there's like jars buried in their backyard of cash and jewelry and stuff like that. But as far as his kids go, you know, did they see this coming eight years ago or 10 years ago when she met, they met in prison, they should have saw something back then. Well, I'm sure they weren't crazy about the idea of uh, such a young woman marrying their dad and, you know, coming and, you know, being, uh, usurping their position with their father. So I'm sure that's not a, a new, a new rift. Fast Eddie, they called him, right? Uh, yeah, some called him that. Yeah, I'm sure. Fast Eddie. I hear he never drank or smoked. Is that true? That's that's what they say. Yes, he he never drank or smoked. He was a, a you know a committed gambler and womanizer. But uh, but you know he got away with a lot because he now never. Now she's keeping him in her ashtray. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, he's in a big ashtray now. So so, so much right. for not smoking. Couldn't couldn't this okay. rift have been avoided if she just got like a much bigger nightstand and just put the whole body there? <laughs> wow. Okay, Andrew, you're really uh, you're really you know getting very creative well, with this isn't solution. Isn't that what they're doing lately? Didn't like a few years ago, weren't people having their uh, like taxidermy? Bodies? Yeah, taxidermy, and people would come and walk through the tax, you know, walk in the church or the the theater and see the taxidermy body didn't one of these uh local legends do that a few years ago or something well ernie like cato is that uh, i don't think it, well he, no, uh, he it wasn't it. ernie cato no that was so, that was a wax figure not a, not a mannequin yeah yeah some woman some uptown bourgeois woman who was very uh uh kind of like a chris owens type character she <laughs> had she had she had she was taxidermied along with her dog and People walked by. It was like a viewing of her. So I, I can't remember. This was about five, six years ago or something like that. Mm, but okay. um, anyway, it, it's all good. You know, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, and money to money, and, you know, whatever. Okay. <laughs> what else is going on politically? Because I know uh, there's a big story. Uh, uh, one of our councilmen, 
Yes, that's uh, the other story. Yes. Yeah, yeah. What's yes, his name? Uh, Chauncey Brissett? No, uh, Jared Brissett. Oh, uh, I yes. thought it was Chauncey sounds. He looks like a Chauncey. Though, he does he? have a bit of a Chauncey uh, mug <laughs> yeah. to him. The face yeah. is a little Chauncey-esque. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But no, like his name's uh, Jared Brissett. And, uh, you know, my heart goes out to him. This is definitely troubled men news. Uh, you know, this is, uh, he, he, it says in the newspaper, uh, well, it says, uh, again, accused of DWI, driving while intoxicated. And uh, it says he'd, he'd hoped to rebound from his 2020 drunken driving arrest. Right. Um, and, and was pursuing a long shot bid for an, an at-large council seat, which is yes. you know, the, the campaign that we're in right now. Yes. And, uh, but apparently... Um, he went to like a picnic for Zulu, the crew of Zulu. He was at some picnic or something. Okay. That's where he was during the daytime? Yeah, apparently. And, you know, getting hammered. Okay. Yeah, this is this is what I read. Okay, well, it says that he was uh, he was booked uh, uh, early Monday morning. Yes, um, uh, that that they they found him passed out behind the wheel uh, at uh, Brothers Express Food Market on Elysian Fields, which is a fabulous uh, place if you've ever been there. It's yeah, fabulous. I have, I have. It's it's yeah. uh, actually a few blocks from where his first uh, where he totaled his city owned uh, oh, yeah. car last year with his with his uh, most recent, you know, previous uh, DWI arrest. So the thing about this arrest, though, uh, he was parked. So how could he be driving under the influence if he well, was parked? Well, that's, that's what I thought, too. From what I understand, if you're there and you have the keys in the ignition, they can arrest you. If you have the keys out of the ignition, it's just like, you know, a domicile. It's like your house or something, you know, as long as you, the car's not running. Well, you'd um, think he'd know that. Well, you know, maybe he knew it, but he wasn't and uh, didn't have the uh, presence of mind to follow through on that, perhaps. Well, right. It's uh, like note note to self, pull keys out of the ignition, then pass out. Right. right. <laughs> pass out in a bucket of brother's chicken. Right, right. Well, it's a tough break for, for Jared, man. Uh, I, I, my, my heart goes out to him. It, it turns out, uh, you know, reading further down into the article, that's his, his, actually his third arrest for... Uh, on on accusations of drunk driving so you know i'm not sure if he has a drinking problem but he definitely has a driving problem right yes but also i think a part of the reason why uh he probably got hammered because the saints had the bye week so okay. he, went, he didn't stay home and watch the saints he went out and there's nothing good when you go out especially to a picnic with uh, the zulu crew well, you think they were hitting it hard? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They're going to party. They're going to say, hey, councilman, come taste this. Hey, councilman, we'll vote for you if you take this shot. Hey, councilman, <laughs> I you love you. Were... We'll vote for you. Sniff this. Oh, you know? I don't know. You think they were goading him into it like a fraternity house or something? You never know. He, he looks, he's so young looking. He looks like he could be in a fraternity still, that guy. Yeah, he's yeah. in he's uh he's in his thirties still, so he's he's uh well he's you know his, the big news the, is is that mm -hmm. uh, he was in alliance with Christian Palmer, the other councilwoman who's going up for the same. They were in alliance together against J.P. Morrell, who's the uh, one of the big money guys who's running for that at large seat. Right, and I don't know if you get a lot of this literature, the campaign literature is going around, but all this anti-J.P. Morrell stuff. If you read the fine print at the bottom, this was you know this this was you know paid for by the committee of uh, Palmer and Brousset. They were both going against him. 
Yes, yeah, so they were tag teaming. They were tag teaming against him. Now I don't know, you know, why I don't know who becomes the winner of that if they're all three running for the same seat. Well, it's two seats. It's the top. T- it's two. There are two at-large seats. So the top two uh, uh, vote getters. Okay, get so will, will Christian Palmer now just you know is she going to just say hey? Uh, I can't deal with this guy anymore, you know? Yeah, I mean, I would say politically, she's probably got to cut him loose, don't you think? I would hope so, you know? Yeah. She wasn't in the passenger seat. She was no. not in the vehicle. Oh, okay, yeah, okay, yeah, okay. Yeah, no. She was in the trunk of the car. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, that's even worse, Manny. Actually, she got pulled over riding a horse drunk. That's what happened to her. She was on a horse that she found at City Park. Hmm, okay. Anyway, though, but, you know, I remember meeting uh, Christian Palmer years ago. I think it was in 2002 election or six election. And that's when we had that councilwoman. Remember Stacy Head? Sure, mm-hmm. sure. Yeah, yeah. Stacy Head, who when I first met her, I said, uh, I always thought, you know, I never met you before. I've only heard of your name. But I thought with a name like that, you're a porn star. You know, and did she like that? She kind of grinned and giggled and stuff, <laughs> that kind of thing. And uh, she lost the election that year, anyway. But uh, she's doing very well, I guess. You know, she had a good married. run. Yeah, she's a she successful had a good attorney. Run. She's married to Mister Head. And, uh, yes, she's uh, a successful attorney. Yes. Heading towards the future. Okay, all right. I like that. the I like yeah. the pun, man. Yeah, exactly. But anyway. Uh, what else is going on in your world? So you got your houses fixed. How is your roof at your house? Still no uh, it, progress? It's, it, it's still open. Yeah, we're still uh, still muddle, muddling through with the insurance company. And uh, but I'm I'm beyond that the that topic now. Uh, so so this weekend was the the second weekend of fake jazz fest that didn't happen. <laughs> and uh, but we still had the the nighttime shows for the fake jazz fest. And uh, uh, it, there was actually I played played some some very well attended gigs, man. So I was successful. Had uh, had a very successful loose cattle gig at DBA, and then capped it all off with uh, uh, the glorious Miss Susan Cowsill at uh, at Chicky Wawa. Chicky Wawa is back open, and uh, had a, a fantastic packed house over there. So it's always always uh, a thrilling experience. Now, to are next they to checking Susan. for uh, people who are COVID negative? Do they check all that? Are people having to wear masks inside? They were, they were very diligent about uh, about uh, checking the vaccine status uh, at the door, and uh, had people wearing masks when they were walking around. You know, if you got to your table and you're sitting there, you know, having a drink, you know the seems to be the rules are that that you can take your mask off now i don't know what what good that is at at, at that point it seems like the mask is kind of a performative thing you know it's a little bit of theater but uh you know to whatever i was wearing my mask at the fundraiser i had it on the whole time i I would take it off maybe a few times to talk to people like when we were recording and stuff but i had it strapped around my ears and stuff Okay, uh, and you, you still feel safe, huh? You, you're all, all systems uh, are well, going. You know, I don't go out life. much. I mean, that was the first time I was out, in, you know, in a place like that in quite a long time. So uh, I felt kind of safe, you know. Yeah, we haven't had any. But then again, uh, there's all those old people there. They're the ones who get sick the quickest, you know. Well, so, I don't know. Everybody seemed fairly healthy there. I, we haven't heard that anyone's come come down. The the man. Well, I haven't there, heard from Dave, my number two, since then. So I hope he's okay. Oh, you know, Dave. Dave's uh, Dave's like Keith Richards. He's going to outlast us all, man. Well, I hope. Well, I I don't know about that because 
uh, speaking of fake jazz fest, you know, I've been getting all these uh, stuff via the email about the Stones tour and talk about a you know God they they just look awful. I mean, Keith is like leaning on every time I see footage of their latest show on this American tour, he's always holding on to somebody. Yeah, you know, it's just like leaning on, <laughs> holding on to somebody. You know, it's like yeah, okay, yeah. you know, good, good thing he doesn't use a wah wah pedal. The guy would be on his back. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know. But they're, you know, they apparently the Stones decided after all these years that they're not going to play Brown Sugar. Right, I saw that. It's offensive, you okay, know, offensive towards people. But then I started thinking to myself, well, you know, if they're going to do that, why don't they, they better stop playing Hey Negrita. You know, they better stop playing that song or or that song from the Undercover album, She Went All the Way Down, you know, all, all these songs, you know, they, they should stop, you know, and they've got the song Stupid Girl. Are they going to stop playing that? Oh, they may have, man. Yeah, Where the Boys All Go from yeah, they, the uh, Emotional Rescue album. I, you know, are they going to stop playing that? I don't know. That? The, have, have those been in the set? I haven't seen those in the, in the, in the set I list. I don't know. I don't read the set list. Right, I mean, right, I mean right. at, at that point shouldn't they just stop playing thank you black american music and just play music from england <laughs> if, yeah. you're gonna, if you're gonna do that sure sure i sure mean not. you know like the song some girls you know where they say black women want to get fucked all night you know are they gonna stop playing that in concert are they gonna stop playing that on the radio you know you're gonna that. say some girls they should make it more inclusive and just call it all girls <laughs> <laughs> there you go all right goat yeah yeah i, I can see where you're coming with that all, what all, about that song people. she's like a rainbow <laughs> you know is that a positive or a negative tune i don't know anymore but I then again know. you know i don't know they, they should just stop playing altogether if you ask me but uh, they keep rolling yeah yeah people still keep going out and seeing them yeah mm. stupid people well yeah. i don't know <laughs> uh, I, I, I had a great time seeing him a couple of years ago. I really enjoyed that. So, because um, you were probably high. No, no, I was. I was normal. I was my regular old self. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, I, so our, our guest is. It uh, seems like he's raring to go, man. We should probably get him in here. I'm, huh? I'm sorry. I, I'll. I'll. I'll shut oh, up. Oh no, 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 no. Speak we what like I've spoken to. No, not at all. No, we like that. No, I'm. 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 Uh, so, so. So anyway. Uh, our, our guest, we have a terrific guest, man. He's a uh, he's a recording engineer, record producer, uh, live sound man, sometimes tour manager. He's worked with uh, a lot of greats: Ani DeFranco, the Neville Brothers, Steel Pulse, Maceo Parker, Ray Charles, Big Band, on and on and on. Um, without further ado, the great Mister Andrew Goat Gilcrest. Welcome, Goat. Thank you. I I, I feel welcomed. Okay. Good, 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 good. Now, why do they call you goat? It's one of those weird. I always tell people like, if you're trying to like shoo away a nickname, <laughs> just let people call you that, and and it'll eventually go away. And I, I, it was one of those things where it really, it really pissed me off, and and it then stuck. So now I'm now I'm just. I mean, like like my mom will call me goat now. It's yeah. It's one of, yeah. <laughs> It's fine. Is it like the goat? Like when they talk about sport fi sports figures? No, that's what people are always like. Oh, greatest of all time! And I'm like, no, it's because yeah. I got this like goofy little goatee, and it's oh, just like I, 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 it's it's like a like I look like, a, a, you know, a small 
farm animal. Billy goat. Okay, well, that, yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. Um, you know, when, when I first met you and, and they said you told me your name was Goat, I was like, well, that's not what your mom calls you, right? right, and, right. And, and so for years I called you Andrew, your, your given name. And I'm, which, I'm okay with that. It's fine. I'm, I'm not, right on. you know. But, but, I, but I have acquiesced because everybody knows you as Goat. Right, and, right. Uh, so, so, you know, I've, 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 I've caved in. So, uh, so Goat, uh, uh, you're, you're, you're not an American, are you? I mean, you are an American, but you're not a U.S. citizen. Or maybe you are now, but uh, you're, you're, you, you're trying to out me. That's, that's fine. Yeah, well, well, tell us where you grew up. <laughs> so it, uh, my, my people are all from England. I was born in, in London and was, you know, sh- should have grown up to be a nice British kid, but my folks moved when, when I was four years old, moved to Canada. Um, my, my dad got a job there. And so I, I mostly grew up in, in a town called another town called London near Toronto. Oh, okay. Um, and I, you know, of course Canada is like this, this like group of people like huddling along a, a thin line, uh, right next to their, their big Southern neighbor. So eventually we all, well, we don't all drift down here, but it's kind of what happened to me. Many have, but uh, so so you're you're there, kind of on the outskirts of Toronto. Uh, what's what's your earliest musical experience? Uh, what kind of bands are you into? Uh, when when do you start to gravitating to music as a child? So I'm I, I'm I'm of that age where like you know, of course, in, in, when you're in high school, everyone has to be in a band. So it, I, I kind of went through that thing, and then it just never, you, you know, you're supposed to grow out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I still have like, you know, band photos in my locker. Um, nice. But, uh, at, at that point it was, this is, this is the, like the eighties. So it was this, this idea that, you know, you could get like a, a, a keyboard and a sequencer and a drum machine and start your own band. So that's, that's kind of that, that was my, my initial, my, my initial like push into the music thing was like I, and and definitely wasn't rock and roll that was like i was i was kind of one of the weird art arty kids the theater kids mm. so definitely like the, the there was like when i was in high school there was like this the the, the little smoking patio where where the kids were listening to like acdc and and we were much cooler than that so it was more it was like the human league and depeche mode and and that that was i think that's probably probably how i ended up being becoming a sound engineer because it was all this sort of like high tech kind of shit with music. Right. Right. Yeah. You know, that uh, Depeche Mode band, that's a, a band I, uh, I missed out on the first time around, but I really, really came to, uh, to, to dig that band. Um, it's a crazy story where they had that, that first guy who was like wrote all the, the, the big songs. There's the main songwriter. And after a couple of records, he's like, you know, fuck you guys. I'm going to go have my own solo career. And, uh, he leaves and Martin Gore goes, well, I guess I could write some songs. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yep. Yep. And then it's all the, all the Martin Gore stuff that I really like, you know, that's when I start liking the band pretty much is when, when he takes over. Interesting. Well, so you're so you're there in Toronto, or you know you're 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 into all these these uh, kind of synth pop bands or art synth art bands. Um, how do you get into uh, to engineering, or, or when when does all that happen? When do you start? Again, like I said, I had I had like a you know a, a four track cassette machine that was you know was like 
I like saved up saved up money when I was like 15 years old and got like this Tascam four track machine and I was going to make you know I I I made like cassettes and duplicated them and sold them to other kids in high school who thought I was cool. Nice, nice. So were you doing shows there? I I played up in in Toronto a bunch of times with uh with the Panther Burns. We would play uh the Horseshoe. Yep. It was yep. uh it's a great yeah, place. So I, so I basically Toronto was where like it's it's like you know LA or New York City it's where like Canadians who want to go do something all kind of end up. So I I grew up a couple hours from there and then like went you know went moved to Toronto to go to college and stuck it out there for a dozen or so years. Hmm. Okay, and you were working as an engineer up there doing recording and stuff? Yeah, there was when I I I I went to college to do like like um basically it was like like a feeder college to like the to to bro- the broadcasting world like television and films and radio and I and I was really excited about that and I as soon as I got in I realized that that the whole the world of television and radio and film didn't have anything to do with the actual content and and I I got I very very quickly realized that like oh I don't want to like I don't want to be a a you know, a, a television producer. I just want to like be. I want to be in the clubs, or I want to be making records, or I want to be in that world. So I, I was kind of almost shunned by the college because they were, they, they, it wasn't like a technical school, and they were like, yeah, you, you just want to sit and twiddle knobs. That's not. That was. It was more like, you know, being a, you know, a car mechanic, and it was kind of looked down on. So I, hmm. I, I was actually the person that like engineered all all the other students' school projects because they all thought they were too cool for that stuff. Okay, so you got all the experience. You had all that, uh, all the all the reps that you just getting better and better at this. <laughs> yeah. So and and then there there was uh, uh, I, I I had a friend in in college whose dad was involved. He he like. It's a long and complicated story, but he basically was into some like really experimental music and turned me on to this place in Toronto called the Music Gallery that was basically the sort of focus for experimental music and, you know, free jazz and all this like super weird shit. And I, uh, you know, and and the thing in Canada is that that a lot of of the, the art world or the music world it it all it all runs on like um, Canada Council grants. So mm. this organization had a grant to like hire an intern over the summer to like archive all of the recordings that they've been making for all these years. Um, so I that that was that was my first sort of summer job was listening to like you know sound poets and and all, all this like this weird stuff and trying to like catalog it and archive it. And it, it all just, that, that's kind of where I got started with all this stuff. Now, isn't that the same for the Canadian film industry? Most of their films are, are funded by government grants. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we have, we have a thing like, I mean, literally on the radio, they're, they're, it's called CanCon, which is like Canadian content. So if you right. want to have a commercial radio station, you have to play like a lot of the time, like 30% Canadian artists, which is, you know, how... Uh, you, you know, people like like Celine Dion. How how they got to be a part of how they got to become so big was that that there are only so many people making pop music in Canada, and if you have a commercial radio station and something is like 
even remotely listenable, those stations have to play that music in order to be allowed to play, mm-hmm. you know, the stuff that they really want to sell. So the Canadian government's to blame for the band Rush. Oh man, that's a that's <laughs> see, there were so many names you could have pulled out that I would have been like, yeah, uh, wow, sure, sure, I'll uh, I'll, I'll, I'll go with that one. Who, okay. Which one would you prefer? <sighs> Where would I have gone with that? Uh, that I, I'm, I'm not I'm not even gonna go there. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. But how come though? Uh, how come so much great? comedians come from canada why is that why do we get so much great humor from the canadians i that's a that's a really good question i i don't i don't know it's i mean you grew up there you probably grew up watching the variety shows and you know what i think i think part of it is that we we have this weird thing where we're we're outside of of the u.s but we're we're intently watching everything that happens so it's Mm -hmm. it's like I think the reason that there are good Canadian comedians is that they're, it's like, like color commentary. They're okay. just watching this stuff happen, but they don't have to, you know, they, like they're not worried about like where their next paycheck is going to come from. They've got free healthcare. They're, you know, <laughs> they, they've got like, you know, a, a decent apartment. So they're not, they're not struggling. They're just watching and thinking. Right. And when they do come to America, they know they can always go back. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, we, the, we all have that secret plan. I mean, you know, when when you know in the la- in the last few years, in because the sort of they're like, not building a wall between America and Canada, right. right? That's don't don't even don't even get me started on that one. That's that's our secret. The, the Americans have no idea. They're like who they should be keeping out. Yeah. Uh, well, Canadians are very likable, and that's one thing about the the comedians is that maybe that gives them a certain leg up is there's a, a it's a, a likable you know uh, nature that the canadians seem to have it's because we don't want anything from y'all okay you know it's <laughs> like we're not we're not trying to get something we're just like we just like we're watching and we're commenting and and then yeah when we get hurt we just go to our own hospitals and say you're sorry yeah um, we're t- <laughs> exactly very sorry well so uh uh, Goat, I first met you through uh, Ethan Allen, who's yep. not Canadian, but he was he was in with the the Daniel Lanois uh, clique, which uh, you know is is a Canadian thing in in, in many respects. Did, did you were you familiar He's with Daniel? He's the furniture maker, Ethan Allen. Uh, he has that same name. <laughs> He's not related to the furniture company. Uh, I, I always okay. said uh, his parents must have had a sense of humor. But uh, God, yeah. Jeez. So were 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 you were you in with the uh, is that how you got down to New Orleans? By, that, uh, very, very much so. Yeah, I, I, I had actually done a bunch of uh, a few records at Daniel's studio that he was that that he started um, up up in a town called Hamilton, Ontario, again near Toronto. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, it, it's funny. I've never I've never really like hung out with him, but I definitely was sort of associated with that world and had done a bunch of stuff there. And yeah, I go ahead, go ahead. No. So, I, but, but it was, it was kind of, it was almost accidental because I was doing, actually doing a bunch of stuff, um, a, a bunch of recording with, with Ani DeFranco in Austin. And we were kind of looking around to see where else we might do some recording. 
and New Orleans was close by and I knew about that studio and that's kind of how I ended up coming to New Orleans a bunch and then made friends with Ethan and then there was then there was a moment in time where I was like my my world was kind of imploding and I was like oh my god I've got to just go somewhere else and I I chose I basically had this thing where I was like, okay, I'm either going to go to Austin where I knew a bunch of people, New Orleans where I knew a bunch of people or uh, Portland, Oregon. And so I had this grand scheme where I was leaving where, where I was up in New York state at that time. And I was going to spend like, I can't remember if it was like two weeks or three weeks. I was going to spend a, a, a little chunk of time in New Orleans and then I was going to go to Austin and then I was going to go to Portland and kind of pretend that I lived in those places and see how it felt and see where I wanted to be. And I basically never, I, so New Orleans was the first one on that, that journey. And I've just still haven't left. Right. Right. Well, that, that happens with a lot of people. So, so you were uh, coming down here, they still had uh, Kingsway studio going yep. on. You had yep. the, the great Malcolm Byrne and other uh, Canadian down yep. <laughs> here and uh, Trina Shoemaker and, and uh, Mark Howard. You had a, a whole, uh, a whole nest of, of, uh, of, of uh, affiliates and yep. associates. Can Canadians down here. and not Canadians. Yes. Right, right, right. We had a whole scene and, uh, you know, they had a, a whole style of, of making records. And you and I were talking about this uh, not too long ago about, uh, you know, the way they would work at, at Kingsway where, uh, you know, how different it, it, it was from, you know, a, a modern like uh, Pro Tools type session where you go in and cut it once and the engineer works for a few hours to straighten everything out. And, and then, uh, you know, you, you come do some overdubs where in the, the Lanois school you would go and everybody would be playing close together and bleeding into each other's microphones and you do a million takes uh a million live takes and over and over talk about that song yeah i mean it was it was the live thing it, it wasn't so much the the lack of of editing or whatever it was more that like i and, and i had worked in studios in toronto i had i'd done a, a a bunch of different things and found a studio actually in austin that was kind of kind of more more open that way um and and been really into it and i'd heard about kingsway and i remember literally going there to check it out to think like oh maybe we could do some recording there and i remember walking in and being kind of i mean i have to say i was almost i was shocked i was like wait a minute there is because even the studio that 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 i'd worked in in austin there was a separate control room and then let these live rooms and it was still kind of very you know, kind of open and very like, like being in a big, big old house. But the Kingsway thing was, was a, another level beyond that, where it was like, there was no, there was no glass. There, there was no sound isolation. There was like the con you walked into the place and the console was just kind of in the first big living room. Right. And it didn't really face anything. Like when you were recording, you weren't, like sitting at the console, looking forward, you know, towards the artist, the console just faced a wall. And if you right. want to look at the artist, <laughs> had to you, turn around, <laughs> you had to turn around or they might be, you know, somewhere down the hall. And they literally had like this big, it was like probably like a 24 channel, hundred foot long snake that you could just put in, you, you could like wind it up the stairs and put it in a bedroom upstairs if you wanted to record there. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't like, oh, here's where we put drums and here's where we put, you know, here's the booth where we hide the singer. It was just like, here's a big old house. And I was like, oh, this is, this is not cool. 
This <laughs> this is I don't think we can make a record there. And then I kind of like took a breath and I'm like, well, I guess Bob Dylan thought it was okay. And I guess <laughs> like the U2 stuff that they did sounds pretty good. And uh, you know, I mean, literally you could hear on Esplanade that, you know, the 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 horse and buggies going by at night. You, you know, when you're recording, it's like, oh shit, you know what? We can't use that take because you you could hear the like the clopping of horses or hear cars going by. And I was like, this is not a real studio. This is not what, you know, and it, it seriously, it, 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 for, for a minute, it kind of freaked me out. And then, you know, surprise, surprise, it changed my whole life. I was like, Oh, turns out that the reason really good stuff gets done here isn't because they've got all this acoustic treatment and they have the best of this or the best of this. It's that musicians feel really comfortable here. And, everyone's looking at each other and everyone's playing together. And it turns out there are certain types of music that are best made that way. And, right. and, you know, I it's still, you know, the, the work that I do here, I've, I've got, you know, friends in out in the real world who do all kinds of, of studio work, but it's like most of the stuff that I do here, it's, it's live, you know, it's like, I've done lots of what I call like the Frenchman street records, which are like, you know, these bands that are playing at the, spotted cat once a week they don't they don't need to isolate you know the banjo player right they're used to playing together they're used to playing without mistakes they're they're used to doing complete takes uh, that don't break down because they do it every week yeah yep yep so i you know i feel i'm either lazy or lucky or i figured something out that it you can make records really really fast if you work with people who aren't you know, I, I don't do a lot of records where people are like, oh, should we repeat the last chorus twice? You know, it's like, no, the, those decisions have already been made. And I, I basically just track stuff. Yeah. A recordist. Yeah. Well, and you and I, uh, to, to uh, expand on that idea of, of the live takes and playing together, we were talking about uh, live mixing and how much life, uh, you know, uh, an engineer doing a, a, a live mix, not an automated mix that's uh, everything is tuned and, and precisely uh, figured out uh, to the DB ahead of time, but one where not only is the recording, a, uh, you know, capturing a moment of a performance, but then the live mix is, is capturing, uh, you know, a, a creative act of mixing that. Yeah. I, I mean, again, I feel like that that world is being lost a lot, and and I you know I I am guilty of doing like a shit ton of editing and of like fixing things and moving things and and that element of it you know I'm I'm working in Pro Tools a lot a lot, but I'm still trying to mix on a console, and part of it is a technical thing where I just think it sounds better, and part of it is that like like why are you making that decision and when are you making that decision. And, you know, it's actually Trina is the one who taught me. Um, I don't think she invented it, but she, she kind of taught me this thing of like, rather than automating a mix and making all these perfect decisions, just mix the song like 12 times and then take, take those final mixes and edit those so that you're like, oh, you know what? We kind of nailed the first verse in mix four and we kind of nailed the last chorus in mix 11 and just cut those together. And then it becomes like a kind of a, kind of a best of the performance of mixing. 
write a bit of a collage, but you get all the the emotional response of 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 uh, an actual person, of an actual you know? actual person mixing. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So you know, you're in the moment. Uh, yeah. Which you know, obviously, that's that's what humans respond to is is other humans' decisions and other humans' uh, you know interpretations of. But, but again, it's in certain types of music. I mean, there's like, right, you know, if you're right. if you're working in the sort of electronica world, there's no point in working that way. You just want it to be awesome and right, and that's cool. But I don't think that's a lot of what. It's certainly not not a lot of what I do here in New Orleans. Right, right, or a lot of what New Orleans New Orleans music is about. It's it's that's that's. I mean, some of it is, but the the majority of it is is more of an emotional uh, expression. Yep. Manny, um, I'm looking at my cocktail, and uh, it seems like, yeah, yeah, it seems like this might be a good time to take a little break, don't you think? Yeah, sure. Let's take a break and refresh our cocktails, everybody. Yeah, mine, mine's feeling empty. The nation knows the drill, so we'll be right back. Back with Mr. Manny Chevrolet. I am Renee Coman. Back with our guest, Andrew Goat Gilchrist. Now, Goat, uh, we're back to our original sponsor for the Troubled Men podcast, which uh, was and, and once again is Loose Change. And over the past few weeks, we've identified uh, places where people will locate Loose Change. You know, we said like uh, uh, the couch cushions, uh, your pants pockets, perhaps your daughter's room. Um, you know, the, uh, someone last week said, uh, the, the bottom of the dryer, that's a good place. So, you know, uh, troubled nation, as you, as you run across this loose change, you know, consider passing it on to the troubled men podcast to, uh, help support the operating costs of the podcast. So we can keep, uh, bringing you these fantastic guests like goat here. And, uh, you know, we have the, the PayPal link, uh, in the show notes and the Facebook page. It's, uh, paypal.me slash troubled men podcast. Uh, we have the, the Patreon page you can join. We still, uh, we do appreciate our, our weekend week out patrons. Um, and, uh, you know, for free, you can follow us on Facebook, uh, Twitter, Instagram, 
And, uh, you know, uh, uh, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, rate us, uh, give us five stars, review us, um, and uh, tell your friends about the Trouble Men podcast. Yeah, because it's exciting. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And it's ha- happening, people. Well, so uh, so back to our, our guest, uh, Goat, Andrew Goat Gilchrist. Sir. So, so uh, Goat, you know, we, we've talked about your affiliation with with uh with Lanwa and, and uh that that school and but you you have your own uh uh fantastic recording studio now uh house of 1000 hertz I, I love the name it's uh it's a bit of a pun you know it's spelled 1000 hz like the like hertz like cycles per second but uh it sounds like uh 1000 pains yeah it's I, it's weird i i I, I kind of toyed around with the name for years and and always thought it was kind of it was a little bit whack, but then I never it it, it just kept coming back and I've never found anything better. So no, I love it and it it, it looks good. the The house of one thousand HZ looks cool. It's uh, you know makes you think for a second, and then you go, oh oh, that's very mm. clever. <laughs> well, do you, I mean, do you remember like you know way back when when it was like I mean uh, one thousand hertz was was it's what's called test tone or calibration tone, right? So it was like when you were going to send out like a master tape, you know, to to get records pressed or whatever, you, you would or or sending tape to another studio you would you put these tones on so that the the engineer in the other place could like line up their like calibrate their machine to make sure it was reproducing in the, at the same level that yours was so a, a thousand hertz was like that's it's it's a tone that would that would show up at the beginning of everything right 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 so it's nice. kind of a it's kind of a reference to all that as well as the like house of a thousand pains or there was yeah. there there was a, a a bar in Austin that I used to go to all the time that we just called house of a thousand taps because it had like so many beers on tap. Okay. And where is your studio? It's a, a, a what did you call it the the dye water uh, uh, deep in the bywater <laughs> in uh, here in New Orleans. Yes, it's it's on it's on the homicide of Saint Claude, Manny. Oh, okay. <laughs> Wow. Not the, not the riverside, but wow. the riverside. Oh, wow. Wow. I'm a little blown uh, away that I've never heard that. I'm, I'm really, I'm, really, yeah. we've, heard that a, yeah. we've heard that a million times. Wow. On this show. <laughs> what side of St. Claude are you on? Oh, the homicide. Wow. <laughs> are you on the riverside or the homicide of St. Claude? Yeah. Yeah. Damn, that's deep. Been nice knowing you goat man. So, so I mean, when I, when I, when I moved to this, this, so, so this is my, my second studio on like literally on the same block, which is a little weird, but whatever. Um, but when I first got my place that, that I turned into the first studio, I was actually working, uh, with the Neville brothers, you know, live like all the time. And, and when they found out where I had, where I was living, wh- where I had moved to, they were, they were like, they were appalled. <laughs> they were just like, oh man, you know, we, we could find you a better place to live. That's, that's, you don't want to, you know, like deep in the bywater. That's like, like, what are yeah. you doing yeah. And now? It, and it's, and, and I was like, oh no, no, it's fine. And I, I mean, I, I literally paid like $27,000 for the, the house that I bought. Uh-huh. Well, you know, and it, it was, it was in good shape, but it was like, you know, a bank auction, one of those kind of weird things. Right. And, and, I I was like I kind of like this neighborhood. It seems like like nobody gives a shit in a kind of a good way. Mm-hmm. And and it was like you know it was close to the French Quarter. It was kind of close to everything. And it was just I don't know. It, it felt it felt okay to me. 
And and people There's were just kind of like people who don't give a shit in a bad way too. Though. Well, yeah, I know, I, I, but whatever, you know. I'm, I'm, and now, but but now, people are like, oh, like treating me like I'm some kind of like real estate entrepreneur, like I knew or I had it all figured out, or I was kind of like <laughs> like a, like an initial investor, right? And, and I I literally had some people move in a few doors down from me. This is like like almost ten years ago, and and they were like basically trying to create like the new new Marini mm-hmm. and they you know that they 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 got into their place and they like hung plants on the porch and they got like little you know gas lights and they were doing this whole thing and then and and then very very quickly they started like complaining that I was making too much noise and I was like oh no uh, and, here and, we go. and they told me they were like oh you were like your house was so nice and you were one of the people who inspired us like oh we could live in this neighborhood and I'm like oh no what have I done I've like <laughs> op- I've opened this place up to these people, so I yeah. Uh, you know what can you do? You can you know you you made it look good. That that always happens. You know you. So now you, I don't cut my grass so much now. There you go. Okay. <laughs> All right. I, I like it. Yeah. Yeah. Get a little aggressive with it. Just yeah. say, listen. Don't blame me. I'm Canadian. Yeah, that's okay, all you, you can always pull that out. That's right. I, I remember uh, being being on the on the tour bus um, with with the Neville brothers, and and there was like there was kind of a front lounge back lounge vibe, and the the front lounge was like, you know, the, pe- people would like listen to a little music or watch a little TV, and the back lounge was basically like like a den of of complaining. <laughs> and, you know, drinking, smoking, and complaining, and and I remember walking into the back lounge and. and 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 people that you know the, the there was a whole thing about complaining about you know uh, about 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 whitey about the oppressors about the like and I walked in and I'm like oh shit oh no and and Cyril like stopped the conversation and he was like oh no 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 don't worry the goat's not part of this he's Canadian okay and I, so I was like let off the hook nice. like somehow I I was not the oppressor because I was Canadian it was it's the only time that that's like. Come like like my my Canadian side has come to serve. So uh, it sounds like basically the band was in the rear of the bus and the other guys were in the front of the bus. The band was complaining more than anybody. Certain members of the band. I I don't, yeah. don't want to go into it. It was sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, ne- the Neville Empire had its factions. Let's just say that. Okay. Well, you spent a good long time out on the road with those guys, right? Oh you yeah. Got like yep. there for like four or five years or something. Yeah, something like that. I mean, I. It's it's funny when I when I there, it's a, another convoluted story, but when I when I first came here, um, I I pr- pretty much instantly got into like a terrible motorcycle wreck, and that like knocked me out for a bunch of months. And when I finally was like back up and running again, I was like, oh man, I need a job. I should you know I need to make some money. And we ha- I hadn't really started the studio properly yet, and I had been doing a bunch of live stuff. And I went to um, see my my old buddy chopper at the house of blues and i was like and, and i'd kind of known him for a bunch of years and i was like hey man i'm i'm and i literally still had like like a walker on one foot and and i was like i'm really really looking for some work do you have anything and this was like uh this would be s- spring spring of 2002 and and it was like like kind of getting into summer and he was like man i'm i'm struggling in in the summer in New Orleans, he was like, I'm just struggling to keep like the the people who are working with me at, at House of Blues. I'm just struggling to keep everybody working because things really really 
taper off. And I was like, well, look, I'll give you my number. If anything comes up, if there's any work, you know, let me know. And, and as the, the, the legends now is that like the next morning he gets a call from, from Kenny Nestor, who was the, the Neville brothers kind of production manager saying, I need, I need a front of house guy starting tomorrow. Do you know anybody? And, and Chopper was like, literally my phone number was on like a post-it note, <laughs> like on his desk. And he was like, oh yeah, give this guy a call. And nice. I got this call and they were like, you know, can, can you be, you know, can you pack up everything and get onto a, a tour bus tomorrow? And I was like, yep. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that, that was like, you know, basically five or more years of, of, of my life here. And like, honestly, showing up in new Orleans and getting a job with the Neville brothers was kind of like, you know, it's like showing up in London and getting a job with like, you know, the queen. Right. Was, right. I, I mean, they, they were, you know, I, I, I have, I have a great story where I, I was driving. I, I, I used to drive this like insane 1969 Mustang and, and I, you know, I tried to be nice about it, but it was like, like a really insane muscle car. And mm-hmm. I was uh, on my way to, to go to the, uh, the, the Neville's had this office way up on canal street, kind of near uh, um, Mandina's. And I was on my way up there in this insane car and this convertible Corvette pulls up next to me at the, at the traffic light. And, and, and they start doing that like kind of revving thing. And I'm like, Oh no, it's some like asshole who wants to race me. Cause I'm, I'm driving this crazy car and, and they, and they're kind of like banging on the throttle and I'm ignoring them, pretending I don't notice. And they bang on it one more time. And I look over and it's Aaron Neville ah. in this Corvette. And he's like, come on. And I was like, oh, shit. So the light turns green and we both peel out at top speed. And I, I get up to like, you know, maybe 60 miles an hour. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. I'm doing 60 miles an hour drag racing on Canal Street. This is not cool. And I, I let off the gas and the Corvette just keeps going. So we get we get to the to their to their offices further up Canal Street. And Aaron's pissed off at me. He was like, what was that about? And I was like, what? He was like, you just, you just quit. And I'm like, dude, come on. <laughs> and he, he reaches into his wallet and he pulls out a sheriff's badge. And he was like, you're, you're racing with me. Like, okay. they, they can't do anything. He was like, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a New Orleans sheriff. So you're out with the Neville brothers and, and you know, you have one great band after the next. You, that, that kind of uh, tails off or, or leads into Steel Pulse. You wind up doing, what, like 15 years with Steel I, Pulse? Yeah, I've, I've done stuff with Steel Pulse, um, yeah, on and off for, ooh, yeah, probably almost 20 years now. It's, it's, been, a, it's been a chunk of time. I, I've, you know, done, done a whole bunch of tours with them, and they're like, like a, an, a, they're a super great band to work with because they're so on their thing. They're right. just like, they, they kind of, you know, it's, it's one of those, like some, some bands have good shows and bad shows. They just do this amazing show every time. And it's, they're, they're, they're great. Yeah. Now at the same time that you're working with them, you start working with, uh, the legendary Maceo Parker, you know, uh, from the James Brown band from, from, uh, Parliament Funkadelic, uh, you know, great artist in his own right. Yep, and, and another another weird story where I, I basically had stopped, just stopped working with the Neville brothers, and I get a call from Maceo's manager saying, and and I had I had known him again. It's a, a 
a kind of a, a weird convoluted history, but I, I'd met him a bunch of years earlier and, and we'd always talked and anyway, so I, I get a call from, from his manager saying, Hey, you know, he, Maceo had had like a, and I'm trying to remember who it was. It was like some, somebody sort of influential who had gone to see one of his shows and been like, man, I love what you do, but the show sounded terrible. Why are you not tour? He basically toured for most of his career without a sound guy. Hmm. In that okay. super old school like way, which was really beautiful, and I, I'd seen I'd seen him a bunch of times, uh, a, a bunch in Austin, and I remember seeing some shows that were like, just you know, jaw droppingly great, and other shows where you were just like, oh, you know, it didn't really work very well. So finally, his his manager was able to convince him that maybe it would be a good idea to tour with a sound engineer, so that. It would take some of the pressure off and so that they would have more consistent shows. And apparently my name had come up from someone that they were talking to who was like, oh, well, you know, I, I heard I heard Goat just stop working with the Neville brothers. Maybe you should give him a call. So I was like literally about to take a breath trying to figure out what I should do next when I got I got this phone call. And I'm like, uh, yep, I'll be there. Nice. Nobody wants to give you a breath, man. They, no, no. Everybody All wants the, uh, a piece of Goat. Dude, this, this last year and a half, I've... I've I am definitely taking a breath. It's I, I've been like digging around looking for work at this point. It's it's weird. Yeah, well, you and everybody else. I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. since since we stopped the music business for eighteen months. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oops. It's, it's, oops. Yeah, what a shock. Well, so so not not only the big names, the uh, big national names, you worked with a lot of big name uh, New Orleans artists too, uh, Soul Rebels, Big Frida, uh, and and a few uh, a few uh, Troubleman podcast uh, uh, alumni, uh, Quintron. You've done done work with him, Supergroup, and yep. uh, Helen Jolay, the lovely Helen Jolay. In fact, uh, you guys worked so well together, you and Helen got married, right? <laughs> it turns out, yeah, I've I've known her it's it's one of those weird things where you're like oh what really it's like <laughs> uh, like we've known each other for years and i've i've definitely you know had a working relationship with her and did, i've done a couple of records with her and um uh, you know started started doing like you know there, there's a bunch of, of new orleans artists that you know they're they're one, one of their big shows during the year is jazz fest and they you know you kind of don't want to screw up your jazz fest show. So that's the time when a lot of new Orleans artists that might not normally, you know, have like a, a live sound engineers, you know, that they, they're, they're going to call me up and be like, um, will you come and help me with this? Cause right. this is kind Make of a sure big deal. So, blow this. Yeah, exactly. So that's, that's when I first started working with Helen that way. Um, and you know, we, we got along and everything was cool. And then one day it was like, Oh, Oh, okay. Oh, <laughs> so yeah. That's so sweet. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all are such a sweet couple. Well, man, those those shows, those solo shows that that Helen's has done at uh, at at Jazz Fest are some of my favorites. You know, they're so mesmerizing. There, she can hear a pen drop when she's doing those those things at the Lanyap stage. You know, yeah. I mean, she's and, honestly she's amazing, and and I I you know I would love to take credit for some of that, but I I remember the first the first year that I I worked with her doing one of those Lanyap stage shows, she basically brought me brought me to her place and she's like look this is the rig that i'm using and this is how it works and and i was like this makes perfect sense you're doing everything right you know like a lot of it is like kind of like gain structure stuff of like oh i've got this weird mixer that i'm using and i'm 
coming into it this way. And I was like, yeah, you've got this shit figured out. So when I, when I, I do stuff with her and people are like, oh my God, that sounded amazing. I'm like, yeah, I had like a DI coming from her and I didn't compress it and I didn't EQ it. And you thought it sounded amazing. Go me, you know? Right. Yeah. She, she <laughs> delivers that to yeah, you and, yeah, yeah. already in yeah, whole cloth. Nice, nice. She's so talented, uh, as are you. Um, so, so, but then, b- besides these uh, kind of uh, you know well-known artists, you've some of the things we were talking about on on the side uh, really, really uh, get my goat, as it were. You know, like <laughs> you, you mentioned uh, uh, working with uh, Professor Eugene Chadbourne, the great Eugene Chadbourne from Shockabilly, recording his him on Electric Rake, which I've I've seen uh, Eugene play on the, the electric rake and it's uh, it really is something to behold so how did you get involved with with uh you know eugene chadbourne for those that that don't know he's he's one of these uh you know in in the school you know he's kind of reverend fred lane adjacent you know uh, kind of it's uh, one of the the southern fried fruitcakes that i'm i'm so enamored of but uh how did you get involved with eugene chadbourne so again this goes back to what i was talking about right at the beginning of this conversation where i was talking about this place called the music gallery in toronto and it was basically an arts organization slash recording studio venue um and it was all of the weirdest shit and there was a guy um called bob wiseman who was a keyboard player for this sort of you know, at that time, big name Canadian band called Blue Rodeo. And he was like, he was like the weirdo, the guy that like, you know, he, he, it was, he got this really good gig with this big name Canadian band, but he wanted to do really weird shit. So he was making his own records, his own like sol- solo albums and recording them at, at, you know, at his own place or, you know, at different places. And somehow hooked up with, with Eugene Chadbourne and came into to my you know in, into the music gallery where I was working, and was like, oh, we want to do this duet with because we had a really nice grand piano at at this this space, and he was like, yeah, we want to do a duet for grand piano and electric rake, and <laughs> and because this place was so, I mean, the, like honestly, the the stuff that I was doing at that time was so like nothing could phase me. No one was going to come in and be like, oh, I've got this opera and it's all you know. We want to do everything backwards. Or we want, and I'm like, okay, cool. Yep. That's, uh-huh. that's what yeah. I do. <laughs> Sounds about so, right. <laughs> so it was just, yeah, it was just a day in the studio recording and he, you know, did, it was some kind of like, I, it's, he, he kind of like references like Bob, um, refer, he was a great piano player and he was like referencing the Chopin and it's, it's like the sort of the bonus track on his record. And I think it's called like Etude 666. Mm-hmm. And it's just this sort of like, classical piano kind of riffing with Eugene Chadbourne just like thrashing this there's basically a you know a metal garden rake with a with like a contact mic on it right 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 making it making a, a horrendous uh racket yeah just plugged into an amp so it's just feeding back and the the little tines are bouncing around and it was just like absolute noise with this sort of Chopin grand piano and it's you know it was it was this guy's idea of he was just trying to be weird and yeah, I, yeah. I, and and that, that was my gig. So yeah, yeah. it's great. Nice, nice, nice. And, uh, and, and then, uh, you, you've done some work. You wound up playing guitar with John Zorn. How, how, how was that? Again, that's another story from, the, from that zone. So this is actually a really funny story is that 
the um again this this arts organization and they probably had some really serious grant money to you know, bring again again John Zorn for you know to the uh you know uh, hero of the New York downtown scene you yeah. know avant-garde anyway go ahead no and and John Zorn had a had a record label that would put out the most abrasive difficult you know he was he was like the the sort of champion of difficult music mm-hmm. um but anyways he he had there's a, ver- a very famous piece. He, he did these sort of like big conceptual um, pieces. And there's a, a famous piece that, that he, uh, I don't know if you call that writing, but a piece that he had called Cobra, which is like, like a score that, the, that a group of musicians would play. Um, and so he came to this, this venue in Toronto to, to do this performance of Cobra and they brought in all of, you know, players from, from the Toronto symphony. And it was basically the who's who of Toronto musicians that were brought in to play John Zorn's Cobra conducted by Mr. Zorn himself. Mm -hmm. And I was supposed, I was kind of like plugging in mic cables and trying to make sure that this thing was done right for this recording or this performance. So he's in the, in the middle of these rehearsals and he's working with a, a guitar player who I cannot remember who the guitar player was, but a very accomplished, you know, well-known Toronto guitar player. And, and John Zorn was just being like angry and difficult. And, and he was super unimpressed with what this guitar player was putting out. And, 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 you know, that this, this guitar player wanted to do the right thing and wanted to read the score carefully. And he was like, man, you know, you're like, Come on, give me something. So I'm I'm plugging in this this mic into this amp, and he turns to me. He was like, "Hey," and, and I'm, I'm I'm like, you know, twenty. I might have been like nineteen or twenty years old, and and he's like, "Hey, you you play guitar?" And I'm like, "Yeah." I mean, everybody plays guitar, right? It's like you know, <laughs> and I'm like, "Yeah," and and he basically kicks this guitar player out of this this circle, and he was like, "Fine, you be you be the guitar player." Oh, and wow. we go through and I'm, and I'm like, I mean, what do, you, what do you say? It's John Zorn. You can't say, you know, I'm Canadian. I can't say no Sure, <laughs> to be polite. And so, and, and then this, this guitar player is like, he has been kicked out of his seat by John Zorn. What's he going to say? So basically I just like grab this guy's guitar and you know, and I don't, I don't even really read music and I don't really play guitar. Right. So I was perfect. I was like, uh-huh. just like, look at the symbols on the thing. And when it comes time, when somebody points at me, I just like thrash away at this thing. Like I don't know how to play it. And, and, and it was fine. It worked really well. And then I got to be in the performance that night and, you know, play in this piece because he was looking for somebody who didn't really know how to play the guitar there or who go. didn't really want to do the right thing. So yes, I, I got to play on this John Zorn piece. And I, I don't know who I, I'm not, I can't remember who else, like who got to replace me to like plug in all the mics and do that stuff. But some, it, it wasn't that guitar player. You didn't no, it definitely be- wasn't that guitar player. Okay. I think he went home. <laughs> yeah. That would have added in uh, insult to injury. <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh man. Well, uh, well, so, uh, w- one other, maybe the, the weirdest thing that you threw across my, uh, oh, my, no. my okay. plate was, was this video of, and I guess you were the mixing engineer on this. It's a video of Vladimir Putin singing. Oh no! Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Singing <laughs> Blueberry Hill, and and obviously really doing it from the heart. And I was thinking, well, this just goes to show you everybody loves Fats Domino. 
it doesn't matter whether you're Bob Dylan or Lou Reed or fucking Vladimir Putin. Everybody, it's something we can all agree on. Is where was that at, dude? Okay, this is this is such a it's such a weird story, and it's 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 sort of ultra weird because of the New Orleans connection, which absolutely has nothing to do with the story. There's no reason that I'm involved in the story that has any connection to New Orleans. Hmm. So. So a bunch of years ago, there there was it was a, a a big like charity concert thing that was happening in was it Moscow? It's like 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 Saint Petersburg. Um, for it was like a charity event to raise money for a hospital, and these people brought in a bunch of different artists to to play on this thing, which is which was like Paul Anka. Um, I, I know like Goldie Hawn was there. Um, <laughs> nice. And, and, and Ma- anyways, Maceo Parker was one of the artists that they brought in to do this thing. And each, each person was just going to play like a couple of songs, but then somehow, and, and I don't, I don't know if this was like pre-planned or if it was a last minute thing or if it was, it was all very, very secretive. I mean, it was like, literally I got like fingerprinted and went through like metal detectors to get into this venue. Right. But Basically, it turned out that like Mr. Vladimir himself was going to come into this show and wanted to play, I don't know if it's his favorite song or just a song that he knows, but he basically wanted to come and perform Blueberry Hill for this this thing. <laughs> and, and, and I guess the Maceo Parker band was who he was going to use as his backup band. And there was a, a guy, an, a Russian guy who's going to play grand piano and the Maceo band is going to act as the backup band. And Vladimir literally plays the piano and sings this Fats Domino tune. But because I was mixing the Maceo band, because that's my job, and it was kind of part of the Maceo set that Vladimir would show up and do this thing. Basically, that's my claim to fame is I got to mix this performance of Vladimir Putin playing Fats Domino's Blueberry Hill with the Maceo Parker band. Did he sing shirtless? No, I, you know, it's kind of disappointing, but no, no. Now, my big question is, what the hell does Goldie Hawn have to contribute to this? They were, they basically pulled all these celebrities from like, um, you know, I, I don't know. It was a very, very weird event. I'm trying to remember who else was on it. You know, when I was looking at the video, I was thinking, well, there someone has cut in like a, a Golden Globes audience to this no, footage. But no, no, that was the audience. audience. Yeah. Wow, that's yeah. crazy because it's it's a lot of Hollywood celebrities that you yeah. can recognize, and they're all clapping, and like Kevin Costner's there. Yep, Kevin Costner, was, yes, yes, he was. He was and there. Was it was Trump there? I... I didn't notice him there, and I probably would have. I saw, I, I I saw Gene Stapleton there. Was she there? <laughs> could have been. Could have been, Manny. You, you watched that too, huh? Well, you know, I looked no, at the I comments. I didn't watch it. I'm just guessing. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, no, that's a good guess. Um, uh, Carol O'Connor, perhaps. Uh, uh, I was looking at the comments. There were so many positive comments about Vladimir Putin. I was thinking, well, this must be like the, you know, the, the security services get on they have a whole wing to, to go and support the 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 leader's uh youtube performance because there's it's comments like it goes to show you there's nothing this man can't do <laughs> it, it might be that or it might be just that the other comments have just disappeared somehow 
right. I, I don't yeah. I don't know. Not sure. <laughs> it was fun. I mean, he he. I know. I mean, honestly, you know, without getting into any, uh, you know, qualitative, uh, uh, I, he 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 nailed it. I mean, you saw it. It's like he. It's his his English pronunciation was maybe a little whack, but. Man, he 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 had it going on. He 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 started. He 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 sang in time. He yeah. got it to the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a complete performance. Yep. I'll give yep. him that. <laughs> well, that was definitely one of the weirdest things I've ever seen. I'm I'm so nice. impressed that you were involved in that. That's uh, super kinky. I love it's, it. You know, I don't I don't know if you've had those experiences where something like at the time it's just kind of happening, and you're maybe. I mean, it's not like it didn't seem weird, but it. Uh, it was also just kind of like, oh, we're going to do these shows and there's this, we're going to do this. You know, we, we had done like a, a, a few shows during that little tour in, in Russia. So this was like, oh, they're doing a charity benefit thing for this hospital. And then as the day went on, it just got weirder and weirder. And then suddenly you're like, wait, this is my <laughs> job. This is what I'm doing. Okay. You know, were there lots of soldiers there? There were a lot of people in suits with little earpieces. Okay. Because didn't Renee, didn't one of our former guests play a show in Russia where, was it Arn Skarnge or what's that, what's that Russian guy's name that we know? Uh, who did a show in Russia and the soldiers basically kicked out the audience because they wanted to watch the show themselves. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yegor, Yegor. Uh, Yegor, uh, yes. Who's got right. that, from Debosh, uh, yes. Debosh, yeah, well, right, yes. right, right, right. Yeah, Debosh. Yeah, and they uh, the sol- all the punk rock kids were ready to see his band play, and the soldiers just basically beat the hell out of them and got them out because they wanted to watch the show themselves. I do. That was a good story. That's a good podcast story. Yeah, there, you know, there have to be some kind of perks to being a Russian soldier. So I guess if you get to, you know, beat down a, a an audience and see the show yourself, that's you know seems fair. Yeah, well, it's uh, you know, kind of like you know the the cops anywhere. You know, that's that's uh, one of the perks. Is well, it's it's uh, part of the attraction to being on the force. I guess you can push people around a little bit. Dude, I I remember I I did uh, this is again soon after I, when I was working with the Neville Empire. I remember doing um, what is that called? It's like like the the Ferret Street Festival. Yeah, like, like a music festival thing, and right. somehow there was a confusion with when, when the show was supposed to stop, and when the permit. You know, the, like the people doing the festival had their permit set; it was supposed to end at nine o'clock, and somehow, like the the cops decided it was supposed to end at eight o'clock. So I was I was actually mixing Cyril Neville's band, and it was like you know, ten minutes after eight, and this cop came up to me and was like, "You need to turn off, like you, you need to shut this down." This has got to stop. And being, you know, a, a, a not too distantly uh, Canadian person, I tried to reason with this cop. I'm like, no, no, no. The permit says nine o'clock. And the guy who was like running the PA reached over my shoulder and just pulled down the fader and was like, yeah, here in New Orleans, you don't argue with these people. Yeah, right. <laughs> Uh yeah yeah well I was like oh I, that was it was like my it was my big they lesson weren't getting here. paid off enough I guess that was I, the deal. maybe so but it was like yeah. I didn't need to be the one to try to reason with these people and be like no no here's the permit look I'm I'm sorry but the permit says yeah. nine o'clock yeah. and it's like yeah yeah nah, nah, nah. yeah you didn't didn't need to have to learn the hard way no then. so luckily yeah that that God God bless him he just reached over my shoulder pulled down that 
that master fader and yeah, it was yeah. gone. Diffuse the whole thing. Yep. Nice, nice. Yep. Well, well, Andrew, thank you so much. It's been such a thrill to have you on the podcast yes, here. You it know, has. I, yes. I, I I love working with you so much. You know, I wanted to pay you a compliment. When we last time we worked at, uh, or one of the recent times we worked at uh, Broadside together, uh, I was setting up my bass, and you come over and you and you stand in front of the right in front of the stage, and you listen to the way the 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 bass sound coming out of the amp, and you go. Oh, nice, man. And then you go back to the desk, the the mixing board, and you mix it like that. It's uh, it's it's like yes, that's this person understands what what this is about. You know, it's uh, I I hate when I get on stage and I, I play a note and the bass is already so loud in the house, it's coming from everywhere except my amp. It it freaks me the <laughs> fuck out, man. You you'd be surprised how many times that happens. But uh, I hear you. I f- I feel like a lot of people who do what I do, whether it's in the studio or live. They're, they don't really to, to them it's a sort of technical thing and, and that's cool and, and I appreciate that stuff but t- to me again and, and probably one of the reasons that I gravitated towards New Orleans is that like there, t- to me there's like a music thing that happens here that gets way beyond the technical and way beyond like oh what you're supposed to do or I don't, I don't know so t- to me it's like I, it, you know if, if I feel like I've learned anything it's to actually like listen to the music and try to like help that along not to try to control all this shit yes yes this is a spiritual exercise we're involved in here yeah not a technical exercise well uh well again thank you so much goat and uh you know in the in the troubled men podcast we like to say trouble never ends but the struggle continues good night good night good night Yeah.